This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life. And the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day. And I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition, or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad. This is Monday. This is your official kickoff to the week. Today, we are talking with Scott Medellin. And today's episode is going to be one that probably hits pretty close to home because a lot of what Scott's story is, is a lot of the traditional military story of kind of getting stuck into the idea of being in the military, putting in your 20, writing those checks to get that pension, not realizing the true cost of writing that check every day. Because the question I have for you is, do you have one of those images from war that you can't unsee, that those moments of tragedy and hard moments of losing someone or just experiencing a bloodbath, those moments are real. They're in your mind forever. And today's guest, he shares his experience while serving in the Marine Corps and continuing to serve in law enforcement. And he had to learn how to heal, prioritize in family, but also create systems to deal with that, that he also saw in war and on the streets. Scott Mundell has worked as a police officer since 2007. Prior to that, he was in the United States Marine Corps. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom. 2003 and 2005. He was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps where he earned his bachelor's degree and made a move into law enforcement. Through deployments and time in law enforcement, Scott has done his best to inspire others and be a team player. Scott has helped fellow officers keep marriages together, pull through during hard financial times, overcome depression, and has provided encouragement whenever an officer needed it. He's always willing to share his mental health fights to teach others how to become aware and overcome. Scott is an author of the book, Mental Health Fight of the Heroes. If you want to support the podcast, there is a link down in the show notes where Amazon supports us by referring you to the podcast. doesn't cost you anything more, but it does support the podcast and helping this podcast grow and fund the operations to keep it going. Today's episode, guys, is going to be good. It's going to be rich. And so with that said, let's get started. And if you want to hear my big takeaway, hang on to the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Oh, thank you, Ben, for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always good talking with a fellow veteran that decided to take his oath further into his life, and you decided to take that into law enforcement. So before we go into that rabbit hole that I just set you up for, tell us a bit about your family and tell us a bit about your military service. <laughs> well, my family definitely comes first. I've been married for 11 years, I have, and my wife and I have two very rambunctious boys. They're three and five years old, and I actually left full-time law enforcement. I just do it part-time now uh, for the betterment of my family because now I'm able to spend more time with my kids and help raise them. And then, yes, I, I've worked now on how to 
have officers be more informed on how to take care of themselves and be an active advocate for their wellness. But I also use the experiences that I had from the Marine Corps in my two deployments to Iraq in 03 and 05 uh, to help help that cause in a way. What job did you have in the Marine Corps? I was a radio operator. So basically, whatever unit wanted a radio operator, I was rented out to them. What years did you serve? Oh, one to oh seven. And I was actually a nasty reservist, <laughs> uh, but uh, activated in 2003 and 2005 for Iraq. So you didn't start a family till, or even get married, if I do my math correct, till after you got out of the Marine Corps. Correct. Correct. There was, in 07, there was the talk about, well, if you re-enlist, we'll give you this amount of money, but we can't guarantee you won't go back for a third time. At that point, I was dating my wife and I kind of ran that by her. She was like, nah, no. And, and I knew she was the one. And I was like, well, I've been twice and, and I, I, uh, I really do not want to lose her and get the Dear Johnny letter. So I, I decided to get out. So let's go back a little bit further before we go forward. What brought you into the Marine Corps as a reservist? Like, what were you looking for in life that the Marine Corps recruiter said that you could have this by joining? <laughs> the Marine Corps recruiter definitely made a good first impression. He came in to speak to a U.S. history class I was taking in 11th grade. He came in in his dress blues, and that teacher happened to be a Marine Corps veteran, a Navy corpsman, and he had the Marine Corps recruiter come in. The, the Marine Corps recruiter did make a good impression on me when he talked about discipline and being able to set yourself up with life quality characteristics that Marine Corps can teach you that can propel you in any industry you decide to take off in. And as well as I did believe in service to country. I really did. And I, and I still do. So that's, that's what kind of got me into that. i also did yard work for a Marine Corps Colonel who spent 28 years in the Marines. And he said, son, you ever thought about your future? And I said that three, I said that four letter word army. And he just laid right into me and talked about the Marines and that's what got the brain gears turning. So the universe really set you up for like a one road path of. It really did. Yes, it did. <laughs> what made you choose reserve or active? My whole goal was to go into the reserves, go through college to help get help with that, get that uh, GI bill and then go to OCS, become commissioned and then do active time after college. I did go to the first six weeks of the PLC program in Quantico, but then I got deployed in 03. And then after being deployed in 05, I was ready to get onto a career in law enforcement at that point. So yes, life shifted in a way, but I don't regret my time in at any, I mean, it, it was tough. Uh, Marines I know were killed. It War sucks, um, but I don't regret my time of making the decision to go into the Marines. So you teed it up there perfectly. Let's talk about how you talked yourself going from one oath to the next oath. As a kid, I watched cops. <laughs> My mom and dad gave me permission to watch cops. And that I was interested in that, not necessarily for the action in it, not necessarily just by the fact that these police officers were doing something different each and every day. And they were protecting people who called nine, who called them to be there, like who called, who made the 911 call. And that was interesting to me. And then whenever I saw police officers out in the city, I felt safer because they were there. And then when I was 
I'd say fourth, fifth grade or something like that. There was an actual guy who was walking door to door in my neighborhood, but he was looking in the windows. He was standing close to the door. I saw him when I was in the garage waiting on my mom and he was very suspicious. Well, she calls the police. And I just remember that feeling of, man, I want the police to get here. But then I got to thinking as I got older, I could be that person who shows up when someone is like, I need the police here now to come help me. So let's uh, talk so, about the identity so the, a little bit there. You will yeah. put the Marine Corps uniform on, which is like the biggest identity you could freaking assimilate. It's built on 200 over 200 years of tradition. And it's this oh, yeah. idea that you're more than someone. And it sounds like you were always enchanted with kind of being that saver and identity of going in there and rescuing people. Talk about going from the Marine Corps identity and what attracted you about the law enforcement identity. Is there is it the same thing of just like the idea of saving or was there like another layer to it that came up? It was this idea of service, but it was also the idea of fun and excitement in the sense of not being a desk job, doing the same thing, staring at a computer. I'm not knocking people who do that. Everyone has their own piece of the puzzle for society. But it was also law enforcement, paramilitary, team unit kind of co coercion. I'm sorry, not coercion. You're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> uh, pe people working together as a team. That attracted me as well after I had gotten out of the Marines into law enforcement. It just resembled certain things in military aspects. So, yes, it, was, it wasn't exactly a hard transition to make. So knowing what you do now... I'm going to cheat a little bit and ask, what did you get wrong when you were first making that transition about what you assumed putting on that uniform meant? The first mistake I made was that because I am of a certain rank, people will listen. <laughs> uh, in the Marines, in, in the Marines, what are we taught? D discipline. <laughs> and when, a, when an NCO, when a staff NCO on up tells you what to do, you do it when Instant willingness and obedience, as we're taught the same boot camp. 95% of the public does cooperate, but there are that 5%. And when you tell them to do something and they don't listen, it, it, at first, my first year or two, it took some getting used to. Because I really had to dive deep into how can I be patient? How can I become a master at developing language that will get someone to cooperate without having to fight. I hate fighting people, but it was frustrating in the sense that the Marine Corps culture is pretty much squared away in the sense of doing what you're doing, what you're told to do when you're told to do it and, and, and paying attention to detail that people don't really do that necessarily in society, at least a lot of the chunk of who police officers deal with. And that was frustrating to me. What about in that priority? Because I can imagine putting going from one oath where they're asking a lot from you, even prioritizing it over family, because Marine Corps is a joke. If they wanted you to have a family, they would have issued it. And I can imagine there is a half truth to that in the law enforcement as well, because there is a that you got to be out there when they need you. They need you. And it's kind of like a firefighter, like you don't get a choice when you get paid. You got to go. And I imagine that was also a struggle of figuring out what was right and wrong. It was fortunately policing nowadays, the departments, not necessarily all departments, but there, there is more of a family oriented 
culture in the sense that we understand you have a family. If we can work with your schedule, we will do it. I hear a lot of old school cops that were 10 plus year veterans when I first started in 07, that when they started, say, in the late 80s, worked in the started in the late 80s, 90s, a department didn't even ask anything about your family situation. If family got in the way of it at all, you were just, well, time to get another job. That's not necessarily the case anymore, uh, which is which is a good thing. But it does make it difficult because the job is still demanding and family does take a back burner in the sense that if you're not careful, you can get sucked into the job and your family is just kind of left out on the road in a way. So what advice does someone in law enforcement that struggles with this need to hear right now? Family first. I know a lot of police officers, I know a lot of military have heard that phrase before, but there will come a time when you're not in the military. There will come a time when you're not in policing. It's not forever. Whereas family will be there for you, your unit, your department will continue just to do its thing when you leave. And we are, we as humans are relational beings. Having a great family life is, is good for health. Uh, plus faith speaking, it's, it's godly, a, a good family. So that's my advice just to please understand whether in the Marines, whether in law enforcement, family has to come first. Uh, it, it, there's no other way around it. So let's dive into that one a little bit. So within the Marine Corps, there is an, an analogy that I've learned that going from Clark or Superman to Clark Kent is one of the hardest transitions because when you put that Marine Corps uniform on, you feel like Superman. People look to you like Superman, especially if you're in those dress blues. You're almost like this superhero type person that other people can't relate to. And then you take that uniform off permanently and you go back to being Clark Kent and you don't always know who that Clark Kent is. And then I, the same analogy, I'm sure, applies within law enforcement. And while choosing family first is one thing, choosing to turn off one mode and turn on another is probably an entirely different muscle. Go ahead and talk a little bit about that, because I'm sure that that was something you had to learn probably the hard way and have the universe teach you a few lessons the hard way as well. Oh, 100 percent. A little personal story back in 2016 i was working as a police canine officer and i let it become who i was like when people would say hey what do you do well i am a canine officer like i i am this like i mean i my mind was convinced that was me and i let my family just go to i mean i i put them second and the dog and i were first going out there doing as much as we possibly could and then my wife dropped that line that any service member any police officer hates to hear is it's either me or the job but I can't blame her. And I let it get to that point. That's my fault. Uh, so it, it, I let it, I let it get to that point because I didn't do a good enough job of turning it off when I got home. And in the Marines, when I got home from war and I would go, go back to college, it, it would really take patience to understand that the students who were saying naive comments. I, people are definitely entitled to have their opinion about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. I, I know you and I have our own opinions about it, but to say naive things like, well, our troops are over there 
and they're baby killers. I heard that said in a class one time. Now I'm I'm in the Kent mode. I'm not in the Superman mode. Like she had no idea that I had been there. It it takes a great deal of patience, but it also takes a great deal of being able to focus on your health, your mindset each and every day to understand that what you what you do and who you are with the good intention and the right faith and the right practices in your life. I think it builds a sense of confidence. It builds a solid foundation that no matter whether you're in uniform or you're at home, you know who you are, why you do what you do, and you're healthy. And and you can withstand that negative effect that can happen if you don't take care of yourself and you end up letting this thing become your identity or letting letting the job be, be the first thing. What I hear in that and also what I struggled with when I went to school was just the emotional maturity. Like, I think I was like 25, 26, and I'm surrounded by the 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old kids that are just goofing off. And it was always so annoying. And I can imagine, like, within that moment in class, it was about emotional maturity of yourself, of staying calm, understanding that it's just how she sees the world that doesn't make it true. And you have one way to see the world and learning how it's not something you have to prove wrong. It's actually probably more of an opportunity to just understand, like, how does she learn to see the world this way? And that way you can understand and have empathy for it as well. But I want to go back to something because I want to try to get some lessons applied to it. So it's extremely powerful when you admit it's all your fault, but it also sucks. It's a very gut-wrenching thing. They're like, this is all my fault. But when you admit that, you get 100% power back fix it. So what were what are some easy steps that someone can do once they admit it's 100% my fault, but they don't know where to take those first few steps to figure out that reboot? And that's a good question. Speaking from experience, what I had to do was understand what my intention is in life. Like, who am I? Well, I'm a I'm a child beloved by God, but I'm also someone who wants to do good things for others. And I can do that in other areas of my life. It doesn't have to be by putting on that Marine Corps uniform. It doesn't have to be by putting on that police uniform. So focusing on what your intentions are for your life. I mean, that's just me. I, I enjoy being of help to others. That's the first piece of advice I would get. The second is if you are if you take time to mentally prepare yourself in the in before the day starts, I swear to a morning routine. I do. I wake up before the wife and kids do to take time for myself to figure out goals for the day, the week, the months, the years. And that gives my life purpose so that I don't get wrapped up in an external thing being what drives my life. This is not easy. Like this is something you have to stick with, with that you have to stick with. It's also with not a week long. It's, it's like a year long, lifelong process that just has yes, variations it, to it and many layers to it. Yes, absolutely. And and but when people understand that, or if any of your listeners start to un- begin to understand that and take that on about working on yourself day in and day out, over time you will see change, and it's inevitable, and you will find that you have more clarity in your life and you don't necessarily have to rely on something external. 
and then you also with that be, becomes that more dynamic thing about well being humble <laughs> and that's what i had to realize when i was like wow i'm about to lose my marriage and the job's earthly she's godly and i i know <laughs> if i'm getting too religious i'm sorry but i'm just speaking from faith that i it, it put things in perspective and it brought me down to that humble level uh, where i was able to admit it but it it definitely was not easy uh, but so that's my advice regarding that Let's add a cherry on top, and I'm assuming this was maybe the next piece of advice that you had to learn, that you're not meant to do it all on your own. And so I'm wondering, who did you bring into your life to help guide you on this? Because that's the the number one thing, veterans, law enforcement, we have the Superman, which is a single person that lifts all of these heavy things, and that person doesn't exist in real life, and you have to learn that it's through sharing the load with other people that you learn other tricks, other people doing things better, knowing answers that you've been trying to find for years. So who, how did you begin to find those better answers with people around you? I had my good friend, Mike, who he and I were on the same team and he could see that things weren't right at home. And he knew my wife and I, when we were dating, like before we were married, and he just knew something wasn't right. And he was like, wait, y'all, y'all always been happy. You've always been having fun. Something's not right. Anyway, to answer your question, when, when it all transpired and I ended up resigning from that, from that canine unit, uh, he, he was one that helped me by, by pointing me to the fact that Scott, you're a, you're a good dude trying to do things for other people. You can still do that in other ways. Remember that. And I'm glad he said that. And he was one I could call at any time when I started feeling negative and bitter about having to get out of something that I really, really enjoyed. And those in the military who are really, really enjoying it, but yet maybe the family just needs you to walk away from it to keep them. Uh, yeah, I had a good, good friend. My, it was my best friend and he, he helped me out very much. I think I want to just highlight how important it is, whether you're at the point that Scott was or if you're not, having people that give you those almost like breath of oxygen into your soul to help expand and see and lift that fog. I mean, that can be super powerful. I mean, like that one thing that he that guy gave you gave you the visibility to rewire your entire life. Like this is why if you've been listening to the podcast, I preach about tribes and community like till I'm blue in the face because... I mean, my story started changing when I said hello to dad at the park. And those dads started being something for me that I didn't have in my life. And it can be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be something complicated. I'm not telling you to go out and do all these crazy things with the network. I'm telling you, you just have to learn to talk to people, share a few vulnerable moments. And almost almost always, there's someone out there that's stepped a few steps ahead of you and knows where the light switch is in that room. And... You also remind me within this story of the, the book, Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl, which is a story about a man who is a psychologist who was uh, captured during World War II and spent his time as a Jewish in the concentration camp. And he had his entire being stripped away of his, his thesis work that he was working on, his briefcase, which had his book, his all his life work. And he stripped down to nothing but what a tattoo, his body, and the clothes that he was issued. And the, this book really speaks to what does a man look for when everything has been taken away? And who are you when everything that you thought you were and that you this identity that you were speaks to? 
And essentially, the thesis of that book is the one thing that no one can take away from you is the power to love and hope. And it was those two things that got him through. And it was the love of his family not knowing where they were and because they were separated. And just the idea and the fascination with this is who I'm going to put my focus on. And that idea was what he had left, like your ability to love, which is also speaks into the ability to help is still there no matter what identity you assign and what matter what is stripped away with without your wife, your kids, no matter what. Like, who are you at the core when something has stripped everything away as horrific as a concentration camp? It, it, yeah, and that's that's incredible. It's a powerful book. But it's, like, also, it's a hard one to read, but it's a really good book. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I haven't, I haven't read it. Um, I want to. After you just mentioned that, I do. Uh, but it's But it's also proof that when it comes down to it, internal settings of your mind and your heart are are really what will keep you going. It's like externally, a, a job in the Marines or a job in law enforcement or a job in whatever you do can only get you so far. Eventually, it's going to go away. It's all in that internal wiring that you have for love and hope or confidence and discipline, stuff like that. It's just, it's amazing. And, and I didn't know all this stuff. I really was living a life in the Marines and in law enforcement of what I do or what happens to me is how my life's going to be. Uh, I would find external factors to make me happy. Like, oh, I got Sergeant. I can be happier now. <laughs> I should have been happy to begin with. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not about external uh, things. It, I'm not saying that those are have no effect, but when it comes down to it for a person as proof by Victor, internal thinking and perspectives and, and, and faith are just an amazing thing. I'm so glad you brought that up. I also want to go into something that you inspired there that I can imagine, and I see it within the military as well. It's almost the same analogy that there's this horse and carrot of a pension for law enforcement and also a military pension if you stay and do 20 that these pie in the sky ideas that if you do this loyal thing of giving your life towards service, and if you put your time in that there's a Shangri-La that happens. And I, I don't know whether the stereotype is normal or not, but any law enforcement show that goes and visits someone at the end of their career, that's, that's they've already retired from law enforcement, they usually are crusty and, and pretty depressed and crabby. And I think that speaks to probably what they find at the end of that commitment of you give your life completely for this horse and carrot and you realize at the end, all the people that you really needed to be there with, like your family, are no longer there. And the same thing happens with military. We just had a podcast episode and he's like, there, you need to ask the hard questions. Are you staying to 20 for the right reasons? And if family is a price you have to pay, it's not worth it and you need to pull the plug. And I've interviewed many dads that have ended it early because if they stayed to 20, their family wasn't going to be there. And I could easily see the, like the, the idea of serving law enforcement, serve in government and you get this government pension and it's this perfect place that unicorns and rainbows finally do get a chance to coexist. But I feel like that's a big giant lie that we often buy into. Oh, a hundred percent. I did too, up until about two, three years ago. I, I'm serious. And military and police will hold themselves hostage and say that kind of stuff. And they'll count down the, you know, the count down the years. Well, how are you doing today, Gunny? Or, or how are you doing today, whatever your rank is, you know, how you don't, well, in two more years, I'll be retired. I'll be a lot happier. Uh, you're not guaranteed to live those two years. There's and, no, and there's no DD 214 combined with a happiness package. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. Great way to put it. <laughs> There's no gift box that HR finally puts on your desk that they've been holding over your head for all that time that says, here is the one thing that you've been finally waiting for. Right. And it's oh, usually, yeah. If no, anything, it would be a, if, to make it a, a really sad practical joke. It would be an empty box to symbolize what maybe you have at the end of that commitment because you might have actually sacrificed everything and now you have nothing in this box. Oh, absolutely. And police officers, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and after retirement, the average police officer lives less than 10 years. So you spend 20 to 30 working so hard for this pension. And statistically speaking, you're not likely to live a long time after retirement. I don't know what it is for the military so i only did seven i didn't stay in long enough to find out they were like the retirement it's probably statistics, a little bit but uh, I- better for the military because we usually get out when we're 40 versus a police officer which probably goes into the 50s and it, they're closer to this yeah. real retirement age and they kick it in sooner no one gets out in 40 and usually kicks in early retirement usually either go back to default and get a job or they do something ambitious like those are the two paths and most people yeah take. It, it, yeah I, I can imagine it's better in the military uh, but but still you know all that all that all that fell away in the time leading up to it. Yes, I really do believe that. I think also if people understood that there are ways you can plan your own retirement through multiple streams of income, you don't have to retire on a pension and and this one 401k that you've been saving up in. Like, There's different ways to, especially in the virtual world now with the internet, there's so many different ways to make money and that you can actually work you can actively work towards it and retire earlier and, and be financially free. I mean, it is possible. Is it going to take work, commitment, discipline? Oh, absolutely. But anything worth anything doesn't come easy, nor should it. And you get more out of it when you do earn it. So let's go real for a minute. We've gone, I feel like, surface level. And I want to come up with a question. So I'm not sure whether you have one or not, but I'm going to put you on the spot. So there's a guy out there listening to this. I'm positive he's out there listening. And he's hearing what we just said and saying that's not me because he hasn't had the question that truly accessed the bullshit that's repeating in his head. What is that question that truly like hacks through the back door to wake someone up to this idea that we just talked about, this fallacy of putting your marbles into the future, into a world that maybe you don't even know what it looks like and you're also going to pay the price too high? You're talking about kind of the, the, the person who might be listening right now saying, wait, I'm doing just fine in life and I I am working towards that retirement. That's not me. I've got a plan and I'm working a plan. Right, right. If I would say if things are lining up and it's working out, that's not a problem. Uh, But at the same time, make make a pro and cons list about yourself and about how things are going with your family. And maybe there's a little bit more negative than you thought. If you asked me, if you asked me, uh, now, now I'm just speaking from experience in law enforcement, but being exposed to trauma, if you were to ask me, Scott, are, are you a healthy guy? I would, first thing I would say, yes, absolutely. Like, but the, what I experienced in Iraq, what I've experienced in law enforcement, you know, seeing things that the human mind is not meant to see, uh, seeing some gory things, seeing people dying, you know, no big deal. I, I'm healthy. I'm actually, I'm exercising. I'm fit. And then they say, well, write down all the thoughts you have. Write down how your diet is. Write down how the relationships are going with people. Write down your view of the world. The negatives would have started lining lining up a lot more than the positives. So I would just say to anyone who is 
anyone who, who, who is like, what, no, you guys are wrong. I'm working towards that pension. If everything is lining up, uh, d- do a deep exam into your, to yourself, into your own life, uh, get it on paper, uh, kind of evaluate how things are really going. And if there's more negative than positive, then, then reevaluate as how to go forward. But yes, if, if there is a fact that you are very happy, your family life is doing great, you're, you are not making your kids a sacrifice on the altar of this career, then okay, yeah, no harm in the retirement. <laughs> Hopefully I answered your question well. <laughs> you did, and it actually gave me some different additional insight to some things that I repeat, because sometimes I repeat things on this podcast and don't fully know where they always fit in. But I feel like there's a couple, there's two of them that fit into what we just talked about. And one of them is integrity. And I speak to integrity as the root word of integer, which is a whole number in mathematics. And so I've thought of this new question to ask, do you feel whole? And a whole person is one person that feels unfractioned, that there's not a fraction of you that you ignore, that there's not a fraction of you that you hide. And is there is all of it in the light? And if you do feel a full whole person, and you truly probably are on the right path. But if you feel like you're fractioned and you're being someone different in a couple different fractions of your life, then you're not really living a life integrity to yourself. And that's almost like an internal conflict that doesn't always uh, sabotage you right away, but it has a long fuse. And when that fuse goes, it usually blows everything up. And then the other one that really hit me is this idea of when you were talking about the the intention of the whole thing and asking that question connected with the wholeness, but just relating it back to where is it going? Like, is that what you want? And there's a question that comes from, I, I read about this and how to figure out if you need to get divorced or not in a marriage book. And it's doing a cost cost analysis. And I think that that would actually be a really good tool applied to this of what is the cost of staying? Not list no positives, just what is the cost of staying? What is the cost of going and really weigh which one are you willing to pay? Because they both have a price. Don't even look at them as a, as a gain. Think of what price is staying for 20 and what is the price of leaving? And I think you'll paint the picture in a way of like, I'm always going to like naturally we, we buy cheaper. So you're going to think like that's a big expensive time. Like for me to think that I have to sacrifice 20 years of my life before I can enjoy my kids. Like that sounds like a, like to me uh, earlier, I wouldn't have probably said anything about it, but now like, that's crazy. Like losing my job a year and a half ago, that taught me I am done with this equation of trading time and money for memories with my kids. Like that doesn't compute anymore. The cost is too high, especially after losing it. It was like, I did that. I played the game and I got burned. That cost was way too high, and I wasn't consciously looking at it from that angle. But I think that cost-cost would really answer and and cut through that back door of like, there's a bullshit that you're buying every day, and it stinks. And there's a cost to that, and recognizing which room has the bigger order. Like, just um, getting that, I think that would be a really good question into that dad that's listening that thinks, this isn't me. Because I can't tell you how many veterans that listen to this podcast that often tell themselves that's not me until one day they realize through an episode or I say something and then they're like, oh, he was talking about me. I just couldn't hear it through my ego telling my like, you don't need any of that. Just look over here while this guy's saying this over there. Oh, yeah. And and I've been there. And that's that's why I'm trying to do the best I can to be an advocate for those who are who are in that, in the, in those shoes. It's like, because 
I've been depressed. I've almost lost my marriage. Like I've been in those painful shoes. It's like, but yet you couldn't have told me anything different leading up to the point where there was pain that I felt and had to change. Uh, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping to always do is that people don't have to go through the, the pain or they don't have to go through the whole sacrifice of their, you know, their, their 20 years before their family is finally put first. Heck, I know of a, a former Marine Corps major. He was in for 14 years, 14 years. And there was six years left to retirement and the Marine Corps got to the point where it stressed him out so bad. He said, I'm out of here. He said, this is not worth it. And he, and I asked him, you know, to this day, I could ask, do you regret getting out? And he's no, they, <laughs> it wasn't, it was, it was not worth it. I mean, he was in 14 years, six, till, six years till retirement. And he realized that he was just dying because of the stress of, I guess his unit or whatever, but he got out. And, uh, he did that cost cost thing. Uh, maybe not specifically that, but he saw the cost and he got out. Yeah. I mean, once you even add up the lifetime of value of your pension, it's not something you can pass on. It ends the moment you die. So it's not like something you inherit that gets passed on to your spouse or something. So that cost is limited to how I'm like, if you die when you're 45 or maybe even die two years after you get out, your wife's going to be like, well, that was fucking short because she, he gave 20 years for this thing. And I, we only got a chance to enjoy two years of it. And that was it. So like that cost, I think that's a really good question that really hopefully cut through the bullshit that someone might be telling themselves. I want to go into a different category here before we wrap up. How has this kind of whole process showed up in your parenting with two boys? Because helping them understand their identity, helping, and they're young, three and five. So like they're at the stage where they're fighting their boundaries. They're learning about their masculine energy. They're getting discovered they're getting curious to the world. So how have you kind of rewired from your mistakes to make sure that you lead your kids into a strong version of themselves as adults? I just tell them, don't give up. Like I'm trying to teach my five-year-old right now how to ride a bike. and <laughs> He gets so frustrated. And rather than barking orders at him, like some Marine Corps drill instructor, which is, don't get me wrong. That's my, that's my, that's the tempting thing to do is, well, get up right now. You know, <laughs> do what I tell you to do. I just tell them there are certain characteristics that you can develop confidence, discipline that, that I learned in the Marines that you can apply and that you'll be able to get back up on that bike and you'll be able to ride it. And I don't tell them it that way. I just say like, well, what happens if you just give up are you ever going to know how to ride it and he says i won't know how to ride it uh, so i the way i'm raising them is basically through some things i learned in the marine so far as like pain's not a bad thing unfortunately i it, this is my opinion uh, in society nowadays we have it pretty dang good here in america and social media gives the wrong impression that things are like people are instantly successful comfort is the way you're supposed to live. And yet somehow you can succeed beyond your wildest dreams. Like those don't go hand in hand. Yeah. Target so I, I try comfort. to teach my kids you buy like, it there and do even do a target pickup for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I try to tell my kids like pain is not a bad thing. Being frustrated is not necessarily a bad thing. That means you care and you want to do better. So put in the work, put in the time and, and keep plugging away at it. Uh, as, as we had to learn in Marines, we couldn't just coast through boot camp. We couldn't just coast through the promotion process, or at least you shouldn't be able to. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I try to try to teach them and how I'm going about raising them. And also the, in the, 
the big word of empathy. Now, I've really focused on this in my law enforcement career because in order to interact with the public, you have to have empathy and respect. Uh, so I, I try to um, really put myself in their shoes rather than taking it from the adult perspective when they're when they're getting mad and just, you know, kids will be kids. So I want to ask, maybe either you've done it or maybe this is an opportunity just for you to expand on it. Have you ever taken a story of where you almost gave up in the Marine Corps and what would have happened if you did and told it to your son? Yes. Because uh, I think about, that's yeah. Yeah, like I commend you because most military dads do not use their story to really help their kids understand life. And I think it's a real it's a shame because we miss out the opportunity for them to know us. And to them, they, they see it as yeah. like a superhero moment of like, wow, my dad did that. And if he can do it, I can do it. And if he thinks I can do it, like, wow, I could be like him. Like they logically come to that conclusion fairly quickly. And riding a bike is one of those like perfect milestones. And you aren't you aren't there yet because you haven't they haven't done it yet. But later, like so my daughter is like she's nine. And so she'll have the similar of like wanting to give up on something. And I'd be like, you always give up on the first attempt? And she's like, well, no. And I'm like, well, remember when you wanted to give up on your bike? You wouldn't be able to ride a bike now if you gave up on it. So I always remind them of you didn't quit on that. So you eventually learned to do it. And you're really good at it now. And once they learn how to ride the bike, you can actually reuse that for most of their childhood is what I'm learning so far. Because they like they remember it because they ride their bike daily. And yeah. it's it's just kind of taking them back to a moment where they were able to do something that they initially thought was hard. And in this moment, you're not really teaching them anything other than coaching them to their own story, like recognizing and finding a moment where remember that time where you did do something right and you did overcome it and you didn't give up like you really felt good about that. Remember how you felt about that? That same thing could happen to now. And just reminding them like that is like bike riding is one of those first perfect moments to show up and help your kids as dads go through something hard, but teach them there's great things on the other side of hard. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yes, I, I will tell them when I see them make a mistake that I have made, I, I will tell them, I'll say later in life, you're going to hate me saying the phrase when I was your age, but right now they don't care about when daddy was their age. And I tell them when I make them out, like I, I, I tell my son, I got off at the wrong school bus one time because I wanted to misbehave <laughs> and I deeply regretted it. Uh, so no, I do not mind opening up to them about my mistakes. My, my dad taught me a great phrase, which has helped me in the Marines and in law enforcement. Uh, when you mess up, fess up, own it, learn from it. And you can talk about it uh, you know, as much as you want to help others learn as well as they're going through life. And I, and I put it into perspective for my kids as well. I don't know whether, you know, I know you've been just started listening to the podcast, but something I preach on that I love the reason why this podcast exists is military dads lived a rich life and not in finance, but in story and life. And you're doing an amazing job of gifting that richness. So as your kids grow up, they're already going to be rich as they enter adulthood because father, your, your, their dad gave them this life wisdom and experience to understand the world with more empathy and have it with a wider view. And like military dads are part of a very few select people in the population that have the ability to give this type of richness because of what we've seen. And this is why I love this particular podcast the most, because we have a unique opportunity to create stronger and more capable adults that actually have this courage and empathy to the world that isn't able to be accessed by any other kid because of what we went through. And I think veterans as dads have this unique opportunity to make a, make a real impact on this world going forward. Oh, that's without a doubt. I mean, we've experienced stuff 
I don't know the exact numbers, but what the military only 5% of the population get in the military or maybe even it's less like than 7% that. Um, of the overall it, population is a veteran. At okay. Time. Okay. Yeah. So you, you think about that 7%, but yet when you make that much of an impact on your kids and hopefully they'll, they'll grow up and make that much more of an impact. You can still make a huge impact just starting with your, just starting with your own children that you have to devote the time for and don't let anything else get in the way of that relationship, especially in their uh, formidable years, which is, why I gave up full-time policing. Cause I was, I mean, every other weekend I'd go three days without seeing them or the Monday through Friday was just stressing us out when I was in the schools. Uh, but I agree with you hundred percent that the military experience will totally uh, help us to give just our kids a different perspective than what most people are going to have. And I think that kind of boils down to what I mentioned earlier about we really have it good in America. We as veterans really are aware of how good we have it, especially uh, those of us who have been deployed to other nations in the world where it was not good at all. And you come back home and you never look at this country the same. Uh, We really can use that to help raise the kids right so they can be a great force for the world. I remember coming back from my first 4th of July parade. I was like two to three years in the Marine Corps and I had been over in Okinawa. I didn't I didn't ever see war, but I saw the Philippines and I saw South Korea. And I just remember looking around. It's a small town 4th of July parade. So as as like rural, like stereotypical 4th of July parade you can get. And just thinking of how everybody's like celebrating and sitting there. And I'm just like, they have no fucking clue. No. And I, I remember like when the, the it was like the first moment that I, I learned this or it started being like a yearly thing for me is I started crying when the fire trucks went by because of the service and because there's something about the whole parade of the police and fire that just kind of makes you emotional, or at least for me. And it was like why I cry in the 4th of July is because I have such a deeper meaning of what that freedom means to me that we're celebrating and most people don't fully have that appreciation. But man. We can create change in our kids, not measured by our life, but measured in centuries and decades. And there's this idea within Native American culture to measure and design your life in seven generational impact and start thinking about how can you do something today that's going to impact seven generations. And I believe military dads are perfectly aligned to create something as strong as a seven generational impact because of what we're able to see and how we understand the world. Like it's it's why this podcast has family as our legacy as one of our the bottom of our logo, because that is our legacy. And we can't do any of that unless we show up and gift our story as dads. And one of my favorite stories to tell my kids is when they get upset that they all get punished for one kid's behavior. And I was like, let me tell you when 80 recruits got punished because one idiot couldn't finish his water bottle or his canteen on time. And they loved those stories. Like they would hear it multiple times or I'll pull up my iPhone and pull up a picture from a long time ago and tell them a story about it. Or like all of those things are really just cool ways for them to know you and they can't be you unless they know you. And I always say the worst case scenario for a father is when you're at the few, when their kids are at your funeral and they meet one of your friends and they hear a story that they wish you would have told them when you were alive. Like that's where my goal is to make sure that they know me enough that there are no surprises at my funeral, that they just get to celebrate all the stories that everybody shares, but that they knew who I was just as much as the friends in my life knew me as well. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're spot on with that. As one final piece of advice, what's a piece of advice that every dad needs to hear that you want to make sure they get out of your life lessons that you've learned? When my son, when my first son was born, 
the first picture of me holding him, I'm holding him at a distance. I'm serious. Like my wife looked at me and said, look how far out you're holding him. Like you're holding this baby so far away from you. Was Since it like an then, M16 drill where you're trying to hold it out in front of you without <laughs> dropping your arms? Right. <laughs> it, it was just, it's like an awkward picture. I mean, it's like, I, I'm almost it's like in my eyes, it's like, okay, uh, what am I supposed to do with this kid? Which is totally natural to go through. But the analogy I'm getting at is I was holding him far away. Unfortunately for the first year of his life, I continued to get further away from him because I got so wrapped up in my identity as working as a police canine officer, military police, it, that identity thing can ha- happen. And I kind of missed a good part of his first year. And then my wife called it out. And also the marriage started to really come under hard times. But ever since that was called out, I've been bringing him in closer and closer and closer and closer. And I finally got to the point where I left my full-time career so that I could be with them and help raise them. And I don't regret that. Many, many experienced veterans I've met, many, many experienced police officers I've met have told me, Scott, do not regret your decision. I missed my kids growing up and I hate that I did. I've heard one guy say before that he is, when he retires, he was going to spend more time with his grandkids because he missed his actual kids when they were growing up. Talk about the cost uh, so of the I pension would just say right there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but if you know, you're a dad, be a dad. Uh, it is, it, you won't get another time for that kid to be five years old. You won't get another time for that kid to be six years old. You won't, you, you know, you know, see where I'm going with this. Just be present to them. They don't, I heard a good saying one time and I don't know who said it. it said kids don't want presence. They want your presence. Like they don't want material gifts. They want you to be there for them. And that, that's kind of my, my last words, so to say, but I, I ever since that picture was taken to me when my son was hours old i've been bringing him in holding him closer and closer and closer i love that and i always take an opportunity to have like snuggle when i'm reading different books to my son and it's that kind of just feeling of safety that you can gift your kids and it happens in those little moments of something as simple as reading a book and putting them under your shoulder and your arm and just letting them know it's okay Like that is a very powerful lesson. And I think that is the great thesis of the lessons that you had to learn the hard way. But I'm really glad that you did. And at the time frame, like I always say in my life, the reason why I rewired my life as a stay-at-home dad, because when I'm 50, I know between the ages of zero and 10, those are the years that everybody wants back and they're already gone. And so I was like, I I gotta come home. And that's why I've been doing what I'm doing. And it's, I know, I can do big things later in life when they don't really care about and they want to hang out with dad. But right now they do. And if I don't prioritize that, it's gone and there's no second chances on it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And what you're doing is a great thing. And I appreciate you having me on to any listener. Uh, hopefully I offered some advice that you found helpful. I wish all dads out there the best fortune just to be great dads. It is a job where you literally can make such an impression and set someone up for such such success later um, that they can be a huge inspiring force in the world. And it can all start with experiences they had with their dad. Uh, just we have to remember that. Yep. So, Scott, I know that you also have a book that helps law enforcement go through this process as well. Go ahead. Tell us about the book and where is the best place to find it? 
Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue was my first book I wrote back April of 2020. I didn't realize more cops, unfortunately, in the recent years had been killing themselves versus those who were actually killed in the line of duty. I felt called to act because I've been treated for PTSD. I've been through depression. I battle anxiety still to this day. I have to learn how to manage it. So anyway, I wrote this book about how your brain is exposed to things you're not supposed to see, especially if you've been in combat or you're in law enforcement. But I also bring up the whole identity thing about if you're in the military, it's what you do. If you're in law enforcement, it's what you do. Whatever your job is, that's what you do. It's not necessarily who you are. I understand it can be a calling. It can be a passion, but it still boils down to who you are and then acknowledging the fact that you are human. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to feel emotions and you need to be you need to address that, need to be aware of what can hurt you. And then I go into later in the book as to what you can do to basically be healthy, healthy and happy in life. And fortunately, the book has helped law enforcement. It has helped people who are not in law enforcement. And it's also helped people who have gone through the, the military as well. And you can get it on amazon.com if you just type in my name, Scott Medlin, or if you actually uh, do mental health fight of the heroes in blue, uh, you'll see it come up. And uh, yeah, it, it's. I, I go around and I speak about what I learned from my experiences, what I learned researching in the book, but it has been a huge help to people who have just been bombarded with life or things they're not supposed to see. And it has helped them tremendously. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll put a link to the book in the show notes for anyone listening wants to go ahead and grab a copy. Scott, thank you for coming on the podcast today. This episode, I am positive, is going to bring some military dads home and hopefully maybe some law enforcement listening to it as well. Gives them a new way to think about their life and re, hopefully realign it towards what matters, which is family at the end of the day. Well, it's been my honor, Ben. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Like I always say, I hope that episode was exactly what you needed. I hope that it moved the needle. If you're struggling with this kind of stuff, if you are in the moment where this stuff just seems like stuff you put in a closet that is always overflowing and it's always exploding every time you try to open it and you're like, I need to stop opening that door, but there's no more room to shove any more stuff in there. Guys, that is who I help. I help dads come through those stories, reframe them, reframe that entire closet to something that's not holding them back, not something that's pushing them away, but getting something that can be the fuel to take them where they've always wanted to go. If you want to check out and get connected, let's do a call together. Head on over to militaryveterandad.com forward slash gift. There's 45 minutes of my time to help you get clarity on what that closet could mean and how do we get it organized and how do we get it functional in a way that it's not something that you have to avoid, but something that you can embrace and bring to your life every single day and that this it's an integrated life of what's happened, not something that you have to avoid. That is out there, militaryveterandad.com forward slash gift. But my big takeaway this episode is that this stuff has processes. This has been a big lesson that I've learned all through 2021 is that while these things seem like they're almost curses that we have as a diagnosis for our entire life, these are real challenges that there are processes and tools to overcome. There are many different things within like the VA, for example, that Virginia Cruz taught me that 80% of the VA's PTSD treatments are successful. It's not something that you learn to live with. It's something that you leave behind. It's something that you can actually embrace and move past. And that's not the stigma that PTSD has. PTSD, for most dads out there, 
They have this idea that this is just who I am. It's part of my identity now. I'm always going to be the guy that you have to be a little bit crazy around or worried about around the 4th of July or any other moment of worrying about when I'm going to lose it and just get set off. That's not how life is meant to go. That is not how you are meant to be defined. And there is more to life than being cursed by an idea that I might have PTSD, whether you're acknowledging it or whether you're not acknowledging it. There is a process through it. Go check out Scott's book with that link to support the show in the podcast show notes. But guys, this is all we have for the week. I hope that this is exactly what you needed. I hope that this gives you the inspiration, the clarity to move through the week and know that you are not alone. If there's one message that I hope has come through out of all these different episodes, now 140 on the podcast, that you are not alone is one of them. And I hope that through all the different messages we brought through, that you feel more connected, that there are other dads out there feeling just like you. And again, if you want help getting through this, book a call with me, militaryveterandad.com forward slash gift. This is my gift to you as a listener for supporting the podcast, sharing it. I always love having these conversations because clarity is one thing we don't have. And we feel like we can only see about 10 feet in front of us some days. We are meant to see miles, if not years into the future. Guys, have a great week. And I'll see you on Friday.